It's Peter Katzis. You're listening to Promoter 101. Prisoner 8675, proceed to the visiting area. Your mother's here and she baked you a cake. Daniel Steinberg and William Lucas Pierce. Daniel Steinberg and William Lucas Pierce. Report to the podcast immediately. It's time for Promoter 101. Watch it, screw. Don't touch the threads. Welcome to the joint that is this magical number 80. That's right. 80. Only 920 left to go. Welcome, everybody. I'm Luke Pierce, joined as always by Dan Steinberg. And this week on Promoter 101, we've got a mega episode featuring Conway Entertainment's Tony Conway, who's here to enlighten us on some industry history and over 40 years of this business. Plus, APA's Craig Newman proving once again that he is just the kindest soul in this industry. Craigie Fresh. And we've got St. Louis Fox's Steve Littman sharing how the Fox became world famous. Plus, Soda Jerk Presents Mike Barst talks about competing in the Mile High City. And we've got three questions from New Frontier Touring's Paul Lore. But first, a correction from episode 78. That's two weeks back. We said William Morris is opening an office in Australia with Jess Mills. And that was a mistake. And it was pointed out to us that it's not WME, it's WMA, the digital agency who recently set up shop in Australia with Jesse Mills. We want to thank Andrew White of Live Nation Australia for calling that to our attention. I don't know how we fucked that up, Luke. I don't know either, Dan. Speaking of news, we've got Celebrity Access's Joe Reinhardt's breaking down the news of the week. Let's do it. Hi, this is Stuart Galbraith. I'm the CEO at Kilimanjaro, and I'm on Promoter 101. The tour is over, and we're planning on sticking around to the studios for the time being, but you can catch me live in Canada. Canada, that's right. Dan will be up there on Tuesday, July 24th at IAVM's Venue Connect 2018. He'll be moderating the promoter and agent panel with a great little lineup. You got CAA's Brian Hill, APA's Ralph James, Dan's business partner and Emporium Presents' co-founder Jason Zink, plus Frank Productions' Charlie Goldstone and Live Nation Riley O'Connors. Dan, moderating honors are all yours and that'll be in Toronto, Canada, July 24th. Register now for IAVM's Venue Connect at IAVM.org. I got to tell you, I've been working on this panel for literally about two seconds now, and it's shaping up to be incredible. You can follow us on Twitter. W. Luke Pierce is how you find the Lucas one. I'm at the Jew. And the show, well, it's Promoters 101. And that's what that S, and as we always tell you, it's plural. So there's a big fucking S after Promoters before the 101 part. <laughs> it's a giant S on Twitter. We love hearing from you anytime at all. Just Email us at steiny at promoter101.net. That'll hit both Dan and I, and we will respond. We'll give you our money-back guarantee. We are really amazing at responding. It's what we do best. We may not say what you want, but we'll say something. Win a chance to be steiny for the day. That's right. You can co-host the podcast with me and Luke and be steiny for the day. Just send us a note to steiny at promoter101.net and tell us why you want to be me. Seems easy, huh, Luke? Dan, I can't imagine it's easy being you at all. 
Hi, it's Steve Zapp from ITB International Talent Booking Agency. I'm on Promoter 101. If you've missed any of the past podcasts, you can always catch up at Promoter101.net. That's right, Promoter101.net, here to service you and all of your Promoter 101 needs. This week, we're featuring a classic reissue of episode 38. Got an amazing interview. The legendary former longtime manager of Dire Straits, Ed Bicknell, who holds court with us for a little bit. Internet sensation, music, median. Alice Bagnell talks about building over 3 million followers. And we've got some free music industry legal advice from Creative Law Network attorney Dave Ratner. Plus, C-Ticket Steve Overman joins us for three questions. It's amazing that everybody else gets the free advice from Dave because he charges me every time I talk to him as he is my actual attorney. <laughs> Don't you think it's time that you actually subscribe to Promoter 101? It doesn't cost you nothing. It's totally like a free service, dude. So sign up wherever you like listen to podcasts and tell some friends. You can give us a review, you know, shout us out on your Twitter page, or you can totally ignore us and just continue to listen for free because, you know, you never really brought much to this relationship. Ouch. That's pretty harsh, Dan. I don't know how I feel about that. You need a hug? I do need a hug. It's a rainy Thursday in Nashville. Well, maybe one of our many, many listeners that doesn't subscribe and write reviews can <laughs> embrace you tight at night. I'll wrap the arms around. I just I feel the love. All right. Well, forget the review. Just a, a firm embrace for a friend, W. Luke Pierce, when you see him next. You can find me upstairs at Robert's Western World. With a good fried uh, bologna sandwich. Probably a burger at Robert's, but I like where your head's at. And some chow chow. And some chow chow. Hey, what's going on? This is Bubbles. This is Julian. And this is Ricky. You're listening to Promoter 101. <laughs> News of the week. We're going to welcome to episode 80 of Promoter 101 from Celebrity Access, Mr. Joe Reinerts. Did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. Time for the news and joining us from Celebrity Access. Joe Reinert, welcome to the podcast. How you doing, dude? <laughs> Good. Thanks for inviting me. Some breaking news on Aviche. What can you tell us? It's only been half an hour or so, but the family put out a statement that strongly suggests suicide. It basically says he quit touring and he was looking for peace and finding answers and metaphysical questions and he couldn't find them. And they said he pretty much gave up his search and they are happy that he's finally found peace. There was a strong implication that he had a hand in his own passing. Great artist gone too soon. Yeah. You were also at the press conference for the MSG new venue. What can you tell us about that? Apparently, this is the third press conference that they put out. It was just basically the presentation for what the MSG sphere is going to be in Las Vegas. They did go into depth as to what the audio will be like. That'll be all LED screens, the size, capacity, and it was really well received. It is 170,000 square feet of display, and it's all going to be LED screens. Now, I understand that it's like modular. You can actually shrink or make the venue larger. The full capacity will be about 18,000 seats. And they anticipate it to be debuting around New Year's Eve 2020. So it's Christmas time. I have this vision of Griswold Christmas, Irving trying to plug all the screens in like Clark Griswold and making them all work and one screen being out and none of them working. 
(laughs) one screen goes out. One of the more interesting things is, sure, it's geared toward concerts, and Jim Dolan made sure that it was understood that that would be the case. But they kind of integrated that with two other things that they're going to be using it for, one being TED Talks and presentations or corporate presentations for like a new line of cars or something like that. The other would be just to have the quote-unquote immersive experience. You bring in a orchestra and pretty much everybody just spends their time watching the walls with the LED screens. They're also going to be using almost like a Bose system where they will point speakers and direct areas of the venue and then the floor will be a heptic floor which provides the base. We love what you're doing over at Celebrity Access and thank you so much for being on Promoter 101. Thank you. My name is Tom Windish, and I'm on Promoter 101. I want to take a moment to shine a spotlight and give our affection and attention to Promoter 101's Badass of the Week. This week, it's none other than Golden Voice's Paul Tillett. He has changed the way Americans consume live music with the impact of the way he handles his festivals, the development of his events like Stagecoach, Coachella, and Panorama. He is always been so amazingly supportive and such a positive impact on the music community, making him Promoter 101's Badass of the Week. Congrats goes out to you, T. Yo, this is Tommy Lee. Yeah, that T Lee. And you're listening to Promoter 101. Fucking turn this shit up, bitches. In our feature interview this week, we've got a very special interview with Conway Entertainment Group's Entourage Talent Management's CEO, Tony Conway, to enlighten us on some music industry history with more than 40 years of experience. Please welcome to the podcast, Tony Conway. Tony! Tony Conway, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Let's do a little history. How you found yourself working in the music industry? I started off out at right out in high school. I had a band. I was a drummer. I was booking the band, had fun with that, and went into college doing the same thing. But I decided that I wanted to get into the business side of music and not necessarily the music side. I was more interested in how to book a date and who the promoters were and what it cost. And when I got out of college, I decided to try to apply to different agencies around the country. Nobody would hire me. I had no experience. They all passed on me. So I opened up my own little agency in Nashville, Tennessee, in a two-room office on 16th Avenue in the Buddy Lee building, which had nothing to do with Buddy Lee attractions, but that's where I started. There was a Buddy Lee building that had nothing to do with Buddy Lee attractions? My office had nothing to do with Buddy Lee attractions. And And they leased the first and second floors to people that weren't in the agency business. But that was the Buddy Lee. That was the Buddy Lee building. Okay, got it. So one night, I'd been there about six months booking my little top 40 bands. One night, Buddy Lee knocked on my door and came in and said, hey, I know whenever I'm leaving, he left late at night. You're still down here on the phones, cranking away. I can see your light under the door. If you ever want a job, just come down the hall, go up the elevator. I've got a desk for you. So I said, well, thank you, Mr. Lee, but I'm happy doing what I'm doing. Of course, that's what I really ultimately wanted to do was work for a national agency. But why I turned it down that night, I don't know. So I go home. I tell my girlfriend, which is now my wife, she said, you should take that job. Are you crazy? You call him first thing in the morning. So I did. And I was there for 33 years. 33 years of Buddy Lee Attractions. A long time. It was great. You know, I've seen four generations of artists that I've had the pleasure of working with since that time. So you go back to the early days when it was Roy Orbison and Waylon and Tammy Wynette and George Jones and that crew. And then the next generation, then the next generation, then the next generation from 
Ricky Van Shelton to Garth Brooks to the Dixie Chicks to Jason Aldean to Miranda Lambert. Garth's going to sell six million tickets on this tour, or just did. He just passed six million. For a guy that is retired, pretty solid business. Is there a reason he's special and is not declined in any way, shape, or form after such a long break? The only thing I can say about Garth is he is the master of a mystery. You want to go see Garth Brooks, and when you do, you're totally blown away by the live show. His show is a combination of everything that's been going on out there for the last 30 years on live concerts. When you go back when he first started, when we were doing like Texas Stadium, where he flew over the crowd, and when the stage caught on fire, I mean, this was unheard of in country music. So I think that audience was totally blown away by what they were seeing, and they would tell it was a word of mouth thing. His secret's always been word of mouth. Man, I saw Garth Brooks last night, you got to go see him. He's also very good. He's a good marketer. He markets himself. Ben might be the national promoter, but Garth is the marketing person behind the tour. What Ben has been able to create with that, and I mean, obviously, Garth's talent's a great place to start, but the fact that they're still selling that many tickets. Unbelievable. When you hear adding six show in Spokane. Or eight nights at Pepsi Center. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. He can leave the world for a minute, come back and... It doesn't change. Doesn't change. It's absolutely incredible. And his merch numbers are astounding. So you said, you know, in a few nights, you know. Many nights back in the initial world tour, his merch would outdo his net. You talked about having a big stick one time. Was that something you wielded as a deal maker with Garth? Yeah. When we knew we were going to gross a quarter of a million dollars in merch, we could use that to our advantage. And sometimes if the building wouldn't play along with us or the merchandiser who had the contract wouldn't play along, I had the authority to move buildings. So we just bypass that building, go to the next one. The world for you has always been stacked from the live perspective, right? You've been mm-hmm. an agent, now manager for Alabama and Randy Travis, an acts that still work a ton. You're doing how many Alabama shows? To about 40 this year. That's incredible. Which is a lot. And so the world for you, which I think is why agents probably love working with you, is you've always stacked it from the live side of things. You've come at it from an agent's perspective. Taking time away from Buddy Lee and the sale of that to open up Conway Entertainment Group and Entourage Management, how has your world changed in the last decade or so since opening up? Uh, hold, on, hold on one second. You used the sale of Buddy Lee. Did you have equity? I was a partner, 50%. Yeah. So not just a little bit of equity. <laughs> no. <laughs> I thought that was important to acknowledge and you brought up the sale. Well, you know, it was interesting because those first 10 or 15 years at Buddy Lee, I kept getting hit on by a lot of different agencies. And I remember one time going to Buddy and saying, they're offering me $100,000 more a year than what I'm making. And he goes, well, I can't pay that. You're just going to have to do what you got to do. He said, but if you stick with me, one day you'll own part of this company. And he was right. Out of his word. Yeah. The sale Buddy Lee was what year? You mean when I left? 2009. 2009. Ten years after Buddy had passed away, and I had actually made him a promise that I would stay there for 10 years after he passed away. And so 10 years to the day is when I resigned and offered to sell my share back to the family, and they bought it and opened up my new company. I heard a rumor that Buddy Lee's wife was the pro wrestling phenom. The fabulous moolah. Is that true? That's true. That was his first wife, or maybe second. But uh, Rita Cortez, who was his wife with all of his children and the one I worked with, she was also a professional wrestler. Rita was uh, young and beautiful and the wild new wrestler that Buddy was managing. When he married the fabulous moolah, Buddy was also a wrestler. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
He started wrestling when he was 18. He was born in the Bronx, New York, and his real name was Joseph Penhaw. And he decided, I got to come up with a wrestling name. And there was a men's clothing store in New York City called Buddy Lee's Men's Clothing. And that's where he got the name. Did you know this at all? I didn't. Is Lee legally his name? Did he change it? He did change it. So yes. Joey Lee's legal last name is Joey Lee. He was born. Well, no, in Joey Lee, if he'll tell you the truth, is Joseph Penhall Jr. He goes by his stage name of Joey Lee. Joey Lee. <laughs> you learn something every day. This is some knowledge that we're getting here on Promoter 101. This yeah. is incredible. Some great history and some great story there. Long and famed run, but Buddy Lee, you were not just an agent. You produced fairs. Really, I think a lot of people in Nashville here credit you with bringing the CMA Music Fest into the modern age of what it is today. This yeah. massive free event here. You're a 29, 30 year member of the CMA Board of Directors? 29 years. I've been on the board. Wow. It's a long time. But your role in Buddy Lee wasn't just booking agent. No. So and you know, that. Buddy Lee being a privately owned company and we had no board of directors. I mean, Buddy was the boss. And then when we became partners, it was just the two of us. And we did whatever we felt like we wanted to do. We didn't have any rules, you know? So like if you were at William Morris or you were at CAA, you couldn't promote a concert. Right. You couldn't manage an artist. You couldn't produce a fair or a festival. It was against the rules, you know? Right. But we did. But it's not like the rules in L.A. where you can't be an agent and a promoter simultaneously by law. These are just unwritten rules in the industry, right? It's an unwritten rule, I think, that they want you to focus on that one area that you're supposed to be a specialist in. But Buddy was allowed me to be a promoter. He taught me how to be a promoter. He allowed me to produce, which was amazing because for years and years and years, we were the largest fair producer in the United States. I remember one year we had 12 state fairs. So if you think about that, that's 12 to 15 days at a time. We had to have somebody on site. And so they started in June and they went through October and there was, you know, I was out of the office the entire time. If you look around Nashville, the biggest names in country are represented by the guys that got their breaks at Buddy Lee Attraction. Joey's got Miranda, Florida Georgia Line now, and Justin started there. It's an amazing list of people. Paul Lohr, who runs New Frontier Touring, was there for ages. Yeah. Everybody talks about it. it was kind of the boiling pot for the new breed of country music. God, how did I leave Kevin Neal out of that group? What am I thinking? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, the first act I signed to Buddy Lee was George Strait. But to be involved with the signing and, and the representing of certain artists like Ricky Van Shelton and Garth Brooks and Lori Morgan and... Bill Monroe and... Bill Monroe, Waylon Jennings, George Jones, yeah. Tammy Wynette, Roy Orbison, Marty S Robbins... You know, serious it was, piece of country music history. We were talking earlier. It's been I have experienced four different generations of talent, country music talent, from the what I would consider the old school back in the '60s and '70s till now. Just like you, Luke. Four generations, all right there. You know, <laughs> Luke has experienced all four generations of boy bands. I definitely have seen a few. You've got an amazing legacy, an amazing history, and some incredible stories. There are two stories that I'd love to hear today. One of which was a picture that I walk by almost every day. Full disclosure: I work out of Conway Entertainment Group's office. Right. He's generous enough to lend me a space there. Is that I generous, or do you give him a check for that space? <laughs> Both. Both. <laughs> I hope some of that talent fucking rubs off. <laughs> there, there is an amazing photo in the kitchen break room area in, in the office that's you hanging from a helicopter upside down wearing some sort of jumpsuit jumpsuit with sequins with sequins on yeah. it um, and, and todd bolton told me the full story yesterday for the first time i'd never heard oh, the, really? the was it the big zucchini 
The flying zucchini. Flying zucchini story. The flying zucchini? Yeah. If you, Were you ever a wrestler too, Tony? No, uh, I wasn't. Because that'd be a great wrestling name. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I'd have to wear a mask, though, I think, if I was a wrestler. But that started uh, on a bet at the Illinois State Fair in Springfield, Illinois. And at the time, I was also the agent for Waylon and Neil Young. And Neil had a, he loves Waylon. He loved country music. And so he wanted to do a tour with a country artist. So I was like, cool, let's do it. So we did a Waylon Jennings, Neil Young tour. Holy shit, that's a cool show. Yeah, it was really cool. Who headlined at that point? They flip-flopped every night. The other So one Neil was at that point of his career already, that he was equal to Waylon? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, we were selling 10, 15,000 tickets a night. So we're sitting on the bus and we're, we're just talking before the show that afternoon, before sound check, and we see this helicopter take off from the backstage area. It was just a two-person helicopter and it goes up and it's flying around and all of a sudden we see this guy slide down this rope onto a trapeze that's hanging from the helicopter and he starts doing his act you know standing then sitting then hanging and then what they called the one toe hang which he hung with from his foot and Waylon goes you got to be a crazy son of a bitch hoss to do something like that and I was like I could do that and Neil Young was like you cannot do, there's no way you could do that. And I said, I, how much y'all want to bet I can do that? And then they go, I'll bet you $500. I said, 500 a piece? And they go, yeah. I said, all right, done. We shook hands and I got up and left. And I had an idea. So I go out to the helicopter when it landed and I said, hey guys, I got a bet going and I, I need your help. Let me win this bet. They said, what? And I said, let me get into the outfit that you're wearing and let me get on the trapeze, but only go up about 10 feet and hover. He says, uh, no, we're not going to do that. You're crazy. It's ridiculous. It's very dangerous. And I said, look, I'll split the money with you. I got to do this thing. And they were like, no, we're not going to split the money. So somehow I convinced them to let me and they set up a trapeze backstage for me to practice on that afternoon. And, you know, they said, here's how you hold on to it. Here's how you sit on it. Here's how you stand up on it. And if you ever want to do a, a what they call a knee drop, you just let go of the ropes and fall backwards and you'll hang by your knees. What I didn't know was how to get back up. So uh, <laughs> before gates opened, everybody gathers. I even there's a video of this somewhere, which I'm dying to get a hold of, but I've seen it a couple of times. So I stand on the bubble of the helicopter on the ground. The helicopter takes off. I step back on the trapeze. And, and once he's up about five feet, I'm like, cool, I've won the bet, you know, and he takes off. Keeps going. He, he keeps going and it's 100 feet, 200 feet, 500 feet, 1,000 feet. Nobody towed the helicopter pilot the 10-foot thing, you know, and I am scared shitless. <laughs> I am nothing holding on to but this rope, you know, and I just slowly, slowly slide down and sit down on this trapeze. And then he sort of hovers, he stops, and he's up about a 1,000 feet. I can see the entire, it's like this view right here. I can see the entire city of Springfield, Illinois. I felt somewhat safe and comfortable at that moment, and I just said, well, I might as well do the two-knee hang, and I'd let go of the two ropes and flipped backwards and hung upside down. <laughs> and then the question was, how do you get back up? But I don't know how I did it, but I did it. And I swung and pulled myself back up and I kept looking up at the helicopter. He's laughing and smiling at me, pilot, because it was a glass floor. And I kept going down, down. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> anyway, we landed and I jumped off and 
It was the dumbest thing I've ever done in my entire That's life. But some pretty serious credit with Waylon Jennings there at that point, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You got like, Neil Young to give you 500 bucks. You found a way for an artist to pay an agent. I think that's incredible. Now that you've transitioned into the management world of things, how has life changed for you? And how has the management world brought a different perspective to the work that you were doing? Well, for all the years I was an agent, I dealt with every manager that you can pretty much name. It was amazing. And so I learned from them. And I always felt like if the manager would say no or bump that up or don't do that or, you know, okay, he would advise me on every deal. So I always felt like, what would I do if I was him in this situation? And sometimes I would do the opposite or sometimes I'd do the same thing. But I said, if I ever get the chance to be a manager, I want to see if it works the way I think it does. And so far it has, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I've been very fortunate. But with Alabama here, you know, you had a band that was the biggest band in the history of country music. 43 number one records, sold 70 million albums. And they broke up back in the early 2000s and then decided to get back together. And I was fortunate enough to be there when they decided to get back together. We had known each other for 30 years. I'd had a lot of acts on their tours. And so they called me up and asked if I'd be interested. And at the time, they said they only wanted to do 25 shows a year. And they weren't interested in recording anymore. They wanted to continue the legacy of the band. You know, that was pretty much it. No new music, just the hits two-hour show and they you know they can get 25 songs in but that's half of the hits and, and every song is a hit it's yeah. number one which is Do crazy. they play the same show every night or do they change it up it's pretty much the same show but they have this little running gimmick with each other uh randy and teddy right now that teddy will say you know somebody earlier today told me they wanted to hear such and such it might be a song they hadn't played in 15 years or, or even rehearsed and they get each other at night sometimes is the band's so tight that they can just do that the band is amazing there's no tracks there's no stems this is all live live the harmonies it's unbelievable you just have to see it i'd like to so alabama goes back in the studio southern draw was the first album in 17 years right yes and that's what i was i didn't want to record but they decided oh yeah let's do a new album and then let's do a new gospel album and then now christmas and now let's do a new christmas album yeah because you know why because people are buying them. They're selling, and they're selling a lot of products. We got to talk for a second about Bill Monroe, for sure. Oh. The father of bluegrass music. Yeah. One of your earliest and first clients? He was the first artist that I ever, I guess you could say, literally managed. He wanted a manager and an agent, so I jumped right in there because I just, I love bluegrass music, and he was from Kentucky. I was from Kentucky. He had this whole, you know, like people from Texas, if you're from Texas, you're okay. Well, he had this whole thing about if you're from Kentucky, you're really okay. <laughs> so, yeah, we uh, I represented him for, I don't know, 25 years until he passed away. But he was being honored by President Reagan in Washington, D.C. at the White House for being the only living American that created a style of music. Wow. Mid-80s, early 80s? Early 80s. Yeah. So I asked him, I said, who do you want to take with you? And he goes, well, why don't you go with me? And I was like, okay. I'd, you know, go to the White House? Of course. Meet the president. We met in Nashville. We're at the airport. He gets dropped off by his bus driver. I'm there. And I say to him, where's your invitation 
The Secret Service had said, bring the invitation, that'll get you through the gate. He goes, I left it on the bus in my briefcase. And I said, well, let's call the bus driver and tell him to go out to the bus, pick it up, bring it back here, because we have to take it with us. So it was like a 30-minute lag time. Anyway, the bus driver walks in, gives me the briefcase. We go through security. We get on a plane. We fly to Washington, D.C. The limo picks us up. They take us to the White House. I opened his briefcase to take out his invitation gave him mine. We get in the gate. We go into this main entrance to the White House and this security guard goes, okay, I want you to come with me and I'm going to hold you here until it's time for lunch with the president. So it's this big room with these oil paintings. And I remember it was an oval shaped room. We walk in the door and there's a silhouette of Frank Sinatra standing there. He's standing there looking at a painting. So his back's to us. And I'm like, holy shit, that's Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> this is like in the lobby, like the waiting room. Yeah, it's like a holding, a green room. Yeah. So we walk up and he turns around and he goes, oh, Mr. Monroe. He said, you know, I'm Frank Sinatra and I've been a fan of yours for many, many years. And I used to listen to the Grand Ole Opry on the radio and I'm Really? And so Bill Monroe's just staring at him and Bill Monroe's got on a gray suit and a white cowboy hat, you know, and is a big practical joker, by the way. And he says to Frank Sinatra, um, I don't believe I caught your name. He said, I'm Frank Sinatra. I'm a singer like you, Mr. Monroe. He goes, hmm. Yeah, I think I heard of you. And uh, <laughs> with the dead, serious as he could be. And they come get us and they take us upstairs. And I take my little briefcase with me. The Secret Service guy tells me, you got to put that down here. So I put it down by a coffee table in the room we were in. And we go in a, a reception line and meet the president, take pictures. Everybody sits down. They have lunch. And there's two people that got awards, Sinatra and Bill Monroe. Sinatra, I think, for his contributions to American music, whatever. Get back in the limo. Go back to the airport, get to the airport, go on through security. I go first. And back then you could watch the screen, the video x-ray screen. And I see uh, Mr. Monroe's briefcase coming through and I see this huge pistol on the screen. And I'm like, what in the world? I mean, and so the security guard goes, is that your briefcase? No, that's uh, his briefcase. <laughs> Come over here, both of you. So they put us up against the wall and they body searched us. They handcuffed us. They opened this briefcase up and it's got a 357 with six bullets in it loaded in a crown royal bag under a bunch of papers now you guys had already flown with it we flew through nashville with it <laughs> and, and that was the first question where did you come from uh nashville tennessee they get nashville on the phone do you have a monroe and a conway come through there this morning but yeah well they have a gun in their briefcase and i remember the security girls saying to all of us uh, oh hi mr monroe you're going out of town again today she you know she knew him because he flew a lot and so she wasn't looking at the screen can you believe this and it got through the detectors in nashville and now there's a line of about 50 people you know and bill monroe is just totally scared to death he's never even had a speeding ticket and they go this gun is loaded come with us so we go and they take us down underneath the basement there's like a little jail in the airport that they put you in so this guy comes in it's like a movie you know okay so what are you all doing in washington dc and i said well you want to might want to sit down for this one <laughs> we <laughs> we just had lunch at the white house with president reagan he goes what get the secret service on the phone yeah, they were here. Okay, you better come over here real quick. So long story short, Secret Service come. They identify us. 
Monroe said that he had forgotten he had the pistol in the briefcase, but he did have it. He carried it a lot because he carried a lot of cash on the road. And the guy goes, well, where did you get this gun? Because the serial numbers are filed off. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, a fan gave it to me as a gift. Okay, so a $17,000 fine, by the way, at that time. We tried to talk to some people to try to help us talk to the president. It didn't work. We had to pay the fine. But the moral of the story is if you've never done anything bad in your life and you don't want anybody to ever know about something bad you did, be a country music bluegrass singer (laughs) in Washington, D.C., because we kept this quiet for years. And I only exposed it maybe 10 years ago in a a book. It's a book, right? Yeah, in a book. So that's a true story. (laughs) Obviously, security has been tightened so much on the president that you would never get in the White House with a gun. But more importantly, Reagan was shot while he was in office. This was was before that, too, before he got shot. Wow. And Bill Monroe, he never said a word about it to anybody. And, of course, I didn't either until after he passed away. But true story. What kind of advice can you give the younger generation about how to build a career with longevity? There's no real straight, simple answer to that. It's There's so many variables to it. But I think that if you are convinced, I tell a lot of people this, if you are convinced truthfully that you are as good or better than 99.5% of the artists out there on the road today, and you truly believe it, it's not something your mom and dad told you, it's not your girlfriend, it's not a bunch of your buddies, but if you really deep down believe this, then you have a shot at being successful in the music business. Let me ask you this one last thing before we let you go. As you've been here so long, obviously that show Nashville has told the world how country music works. Did they get it right? You know, it's very sugar-coated. When I watched the first show, I wanted it to be like, I hope that this is the really tells the story the way it is. It's um, 50% correct, I guess is the best way to put it. The music industry is much uh, darker than it is portrayed on the TV show Nashville. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We've been really looking forward to this one. Thank you. My yeah. pleasure. Talk about your icons. Him gracing the mics here at Promoter 101 is an honor. Really changes the game, man. This this guy is incredible. He's going to wind up in the Agent Hall of Fame. I truly believe that, Luke. And seriously, you could not find a nicer guy to take time. Just so many stories. If you're ever in Nashville, look him up, Mr. Tony Conway. This is John Schultz. I'm Windish. Charlie from Crescent Barroom. Greg Newman. Dave Brooks. Dave Ratner. John Holiday. Doug Becknell. LX. Raymond Shaw. Kelly Lesko. Gerald B. Henley. Harlan Fry here. Jack Ross. Jason Miller. Jeffrey Fox. Joe Escalante. Fleur LeBlanc. Martin Atkins. Neil Dixon. Nick Farkas. Paula Palazzo. And I'm on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Tweet. We can't avoid it, Dan. It's the title of this podcast, so let's do it. It's time for some Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. Let's start here. At the end of the day, the person with the biggest address book wins. This is a throwback, Dan. It is, and they all will be this week. I think Bob Lefsetz taught me this one first, but I find it true. The best, most populated, up-to-date data always wins, particularly when you need to find somebody quick. That address book's key. You can't win until you know the rules. You got to know how the game is played. It just makes all the difference in the world, Luke. Yep. Your competitors watch your website more than you think. Yeah, this is something to think about and keep you up at nights. You're welcome. That'll do it for Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. Make sure to follow Dan. He's at the Jew on Twitter. Now, when he says follow me, he means online. He doesn't mean around the conferences like you have some puppy love thing. 
That's stalker shit. Nobody needs that. Just so we're clear. Hi, this is Heath Miller. Becca Leifer. Ed Mike Cohn. Derek Dimenstein. Jason Kupperman. Jason Miller. John Schur. Marsha Flasic. Mike Fruitman. Ricardo Baca. Peter Schwartz. Nick Storch. I'm on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. I'm on Promoter 101. We're joined next by St. Louis Fox's Steve Littman, sharing how the Fox became world famous. The legendary Steve Littman. It's so good to have you here. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. I find it very ironic because we happen to be at the Peabody Theater and you're synonymous with the Fox Theater here in St. Louis. It's true. You know, and everybody closely identifies me with the Fox, but actually I do shows here at the Peabody and I do shows all over the country. It's not just theater shows. You do all styles of shows. Exactly. I do a lot of music. I do some theater. I do a lot of comedy, special events, some children's uh, entertainment. It just depends. And you program the Fox as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. Which is probably what you're most known for. Correct. How much of your business would you say is St. Louis? Mm, 25 or 30%. So you're doing a lot outside the market. Oh, a lot. Yes, a lot. Some of that stuff is that world of PBS, the world of dance, the world of comedy, as you said, and you also do straight up rock. Exactly. I enjoy doing a variety of types of shows. It keeps it interesting. And obviously there are more opportunities if you don't confine yourself to a narrow band of types of entertainment. I've always been fond of stepping outside my niche. Builds your chops. It's good. It's also hard to sell tickets to the same people in the same market every night of the week. If you're selling to multiple different genres, you have a chance of grabbing monies from different sectors opposed to burning out your market too quickly. This is true. As many of us learned to promote in a single market before we became regional and national promoters. That's right. As the business changes and you've got these giant competitors that are trying to feed at certain troughs, so to speak, there are troughs that they aren't trying to feed at, so creates opportunities. When people talk about the Jams and the Franks Brothers, you're certainly among that list of guys that do real volume nationally and can take serious swings and can take a hit. Fortunately, let me find some wood to knock on. Being able to say you can take a real hit matters. The fact that you've done it and you can do it, you can live up to the word that you make. Naturally, that creates a level of confidence in managers and agents. And this is my advice to anybody. You don't want to bite off more than you can chew in the worst case scenario. You have to always constantly think about cash on hand, number of shows you're doing, the resources you're committing for marketing and production and your staff as you're spreading yourself thin across the country doing all this volume. How many shows a year are you taking on right now? You know, it depends upon the year. 130 to 150 probably. And I'm trying to cut my volume down to tell you the truth. The rentals at the Fox on top of that, because obviously the Fox is running more than 130. Oh, absolutely. Right. And how many days a year would you say the Fox is running? In the twos. So between the shows you're doing in and out of the Fox and the calendar itself, it's 300, 350, depending on the year? Probably, yeah. The Fox has a huge Broadway subscription. The Fox has 30,000 subscribers. That's a nice thing to just base your year on right off the bat. (laughs) Well, it's a dual-sided blade, as they say. You know, we'll have these massive Broadway runs, and then it creates calendar issues in terms of doing concerts that you want to do. Clearly, it's easy to talk about the great things that you're doing, the Janet Jackson dates that you get to be involved with and things like that. (laughs) But let's talk about how you got into the business, because it doesn't just happen. Oh, you know, everybody's got these stories. How did they get into the business? So when I was a kid, I was a young manager, and I was also one of those kids that used to take television sets apart and put them back together again. I sort of knew about electronics and audio equipment. Just like an electronics geek, you know? I knew my way around the soldering iron. So the first time I got into a real recording studio, this was everything that I loved all in one place. It was music, electronics, 
recording, creativity. So I basically learned to be a recording engineer in addition to being a manager. This act that I was managing had put all of my blood, sweat, and tears into the act. We had an audition with Atlantic Records. We wanted to sign the act, but they wanted to see the act. So we set up an audition at the Whiskey, and to make a long story short, the band sucked. The Whiskey A Go Go in LA? Uh huh, exactly. The band sucked, Atlantic passed. Within five minutes, the band imploded in the dressing room at the Whiskey. At this point, I'm licking my tail feathers, and I decide to move back to the Midwest and regroup and figure out what I was going to do. So I came back to the Midwest. I was working at radio, and then I heard about a guy in St. Louis who was building a clone of the record plant, the famous recording studio in L.A. He hired the exact same engineers and architects to build a clone of the record plant, virtually identical. So uh, I came down, and this was, I was a kid in a candy store. Well, this is the greatest thing ever. So I started working at the studio, engineering, producing. We were doing rock stuff. I mean, I actually, and I'm serious, I actually did sessions with the Rolling Stones, Jackson Brown, some real talent. And they were also doing commercials and jingles and that kind of stuff. Stones and Jackson Brown. That's nothing to sneeze at. Those are some of the biggest names in rock and roll all heading to the Hall of Fame. No, I'm not saying that any of those tracks ever got used, but, you know. They were there. They were there. So one day I'm in the studio and I get a call from this guy named Irv Zuckerman. Famous promoter from St. Louis from Contemporary. Exactly. So he heard about me and had a couple of acts that he was managing, wanted to come over and meet me. Long story short, he came over. I listened to the stuff. I told him that I could help him polish the tracks up. And he and I really hit it off. So super long story short, we started working together. We got a couple of deals on these acts with major labels. And I started hanging out with him. And my dad had owned an advertising agency in Kansas City where I grew up. So I knew about marketing. So I'm hanging out with him. We're working these records. I'm looking at what they're doing promoting shows. And I said, well, you know, why do you do this? Or why do you do, why are you doing the marketing this way? And he goes, well, I don't know. What would you do? I said, well, I would do it that way. He says, okay, well, do that then. But for me. Right. And what year is this, give or take? This is probably 72. So pre-Kevin Docterman even. Oh, yeah. One thing leads to the other, and all of a sudden, we're managing these acts and working the records, and I'm also getting involved in promoting concerts. And then I start doing some talent buying. And so fast forward the clock 10 years, and I decide to go out on my own and take the Fox on as a client. Forward the clock another couple of decades, and there you go. This is one of the best markets in the country, and you talk about Irvin. In all actuality, this is one of the biggest markets, not so much for concerts, but they were one of the biggest promoters in the world with their monster trucks and their theaters and their concert division all together under one roof. It was absolutely huge. I mean, it like dwarfed Jam, who seemed like a much bigger promoter at the time because of the monster sports and the theatrics and stuff. Yes, and some of that stuff developed after I left. The motorsport division and all that was really took hold after I left. But a very massive company. Company and one of the early purchases from Clear Channel as they were rolling up companies. And Irv at some point wound up running Clear Channel Live Nation out of LA. He was the head guy. Exactly. He and Rodney Eckerman were co-presidents of whatever it was called at the time. So before Canada took it all over, it was St. Louis in the house. That's right. St. Louis has always been an interesting market, depending upon when you look. It's somewhere in the low 20s in terms of ADI. And it's a quirky market. It's an interesting market. I always say, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. 
I always like to think of St. Louis as the place where they opened an amphitheater in night one, Guns N' Roses had a riot. Right. That was interesting. That may be the night that they figured out that soft opens were required. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I wasn't there, but certainly heard a lot about it. At that point, I was concentrating on the Fox. But you guys have never had a riot at the Fox. No. And that's a plus. They rarely riot at Hamilton shows. They probably riot trying to get tickets, but once they're in the building, they're fine. It's a whole other thing. Right. Ticket company's problem. Yeah, Exactly. Which is also something the Fox has, is they own their own ticketing company, right? Right. The Fox owners also own a ticketing company, which also tickets numerous other venues in the uh, metropolitan area. I love how you clarified that, because you had to tell me the Fox doesn't own a ticketing company. They just happen to have the same investors, which you're about to tell me, right? There you go. And, and the clarification of that is important, because it's a separate deal, and you guys are a client of that company that's also owned by the same people. This isn't your first rodeo, is it, Dan? I seem to remember this conversation before. <laughs> in a time and day where Ticketmaster and Access and Ticketfly, Eventbrite, and all of these companies are exploding and fighting and having all of the different technological fights, which is great because it's making the technology better because they all have to be on the cutting edge because they're all competing. Is that something that an independent ticketing company can compete with locally? Sure, because at the end of the day, it's who's in control of the inventory. If you control the inventory, then you're going to maintain control of the inventory by obviously having software and infrastructure that can service the client. In terms of the competition, the technology is important, but you know the politics are important too, and it's kind of a parallel track. Because you have to work with all these ticketing companies too as a promoter. Oh, sure. Yeah. I work with, obviously, with Ticketmaster a lot, and whatever ticket agency the venue's using, as you know, there aren't that many venues where you have a choice. It's like, this is the agency we use. This is the ticket company that we use. And of course, now you have more and more venues that are just doing the ticketing themselves. As phone rooms become less necessary, outlets are basically obsolete. It's really box office and internet. And you know, you can buy a little Unix box and a pretty good piece of software if you have a theater and ticket it yourself and it's a very, very healthy revenue stream. You don't need rooms full of specially cooled mainframe computers. Right. And you don't need the phone banks that you used to have to have because it's mostly online. You say that the outlet's dead, but the box office at a venue of the size of the Fox must do a good amount of sales at the box office. There must be a good amount of point of purchase sales. Yeah, there are. You know, it depends upon the size of the show and the type of show. Not suggesting that camping out needs security anymore to like worry about those lines. Doesn't happen often, but still does on occasion. Something super big, super uber cool. Right, exactly. Or, you know, something where the fans think that prime tickets are going to be allocated exclusively to the box office. So they're trying to access location even more than they're trying to save service charge. You have to go and cut these venue deals in every market, and each venue is different. And when you go back and do a room over and over again, it's, it's, it's so much easier. Of course. But going to cut these deals with different venues and every one of these different art organizations that owns these rooms or cities and municipalities all have different management ideas, and some of them are more green than others. How much of cutting the deal with the venue is the game won or lost with with the show? You know, I think that at least in the lanes that I'm driving down and the venues that I'm dealing with, most of these people pretty much understand the game and understand the model. 
So it becomes less about cutting the deal, which isn't, for me anyway, it's not a high friction part of my day. It's more about getting the show and getting the show on deal terms, you know, that are attractive where you can actually make a profit. If you just want to buy shows, as you know, you can buy shows all day long because it's, it's interesting. Everybody thinks that they're outside of the business. They think that being a promoter is just like the next best thing to winning the Powerball. They have no idea what the reality is. You made a remark on one of the other podcasts that was exactly right on what I often say. If the show sells out, it's the artist. If the show's a stiff, it's us. I think you're referring to Marsha Vlasic's interview where she said it's actually her, it's not me. Okay, when the show there you go. Sell, yeah, that was which it. I even like more because I, I always thought it was me. And she corrected me that it's not. The art artist, unfortunately, doesn't really often remember the local promoter. Right. When it doesn't work, why did that happen? And I thought that was amazing insight to hear from her, as it sounds right. like you did too. But we always agree that if the artist sells the show, it was the artist. And if it didn't, clearly it's somebody on our side of the table. Right. So let's talk about cool. What's cool to you? Because looking at your calendar, you do some of the coolest bands in the world and some of the cooler theater acts in the world as well. But then again, you do some stuff that I think we'd both agree maybe not be cool to the mainstream, but probably makes a lot of money. So the business model and the definition of your target, where does that cool lie in? Is it making money? Is it making money on something that's cool? Or is it bringing arts to the community? And where does that hybrid come together? You know, it's an interesting smorgasbord because I think it is kind of a little arrogant. Entertainment is a subjective thing. How many times have you, because I know this has happened to me, you stand out on the side of the stage at a show and people are having a great time. They're standing, they're screaming, they're clapping, places sold out. And you're saying to yourself, this sucks. What on earth do these people see in this? And the converse of that is how many times have you stood on the side of the stage, you're dying, the place is half empty, you're losing a fortune, and the performance and the music is superb. And you're scratching your head going, why? Why is this? this I think we always say this, and it's a monarchy that I know that we've both talked about. If I booked what I liked, I'd go broke. Exactly. I have a pet theory that the more I like it, the more nervous I have to be about promoting it. We did one of these at the Fox last year where I booked a show that was based on the fact that I love the group. And you told me it wouldn't sell here, and you did it anyway because I wanted to do it. Yeah. And we lost a little bit of money. Yeah, it wasn't a lot, a but lot, we worked but... really, really hard to lose right. a little bit of money. All right. So anyway, what I'm saying is that, that I don't use my own personal taste in terms of deciding what I want to promote. Clearly, it's a business, and I'm not a performing arts center. I'm not tax-supported and don't have an arts mission statement. You know, the mission statement is make money so you can stay in business and make a living and do more shows. But a significant part of it is being able to stand on the side of the stage and know that you were a cog in the wheel, that this event might not be happening, and these people might not be having this life experience. They might not be making that memory if you hadn't done your job, your part of the picture. Now, do you have that same vibe and feeling when you're booking, say, a game show live? Which we've both done. I'm right, as guilty sure. as you are, yeah. and they I, sell. I have some on sale right now. Again, you, you can't be arrogant about the experience. There are people there that are making a memory and having a great time. So from that standpoint, even though it's not my taste, I'm glad to be a part of the... Some of the agents give me a hard time for cherry picking, and I'm sure you get a hard time for this too. But our job is to buy the best of the best and deliver the best to our fans. Now... The fan of the artist, sure, but the fans that we're servicing and selling tickets to. So if I'm bringing an act to a market, they may not be cool to the mainstream, but they're cool in that genre. Right. And if I can't do that, I probably don't have a cool act. True. 
But honestly, for me, it's not about necessarily what's cool. I've been doing this for a long time. I mean, I used to promote Frank Sinatra and Liza Minnelli dates. You had the first Moses tour, right? <laughs> that was just a little you before look me. You good. You know, you try to serve the various communities, whether it's age community or demo community. So I still do some of those old school shows. I do a lot of urban shows. Like you said earlier, you know, a lot of rock shows. I do a lot of comedy. It's all interesting. But I wouldn't say that cool is my driver. It's, you know, do I think it'll work? And you know, you're evaluating that risk reward scenario, which is a, a moving target in this day and age. You know, I was listening to one of the Promoter 101 podcasts this morning. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to myself. It's right. You were talking a lot about developing acts. I was thinking as I was walking, it's different now because when I started doing this way back in the day and we were dealing with the Bill Elsons and the Frank Barcelonas of the world and you had that unwritten, uncontracted, but palpable royalty factor where if you had a working relationship with an act and an agent and you'd go in and you would take a shot with an act, you would, on any reasonable basis, get the act back and you would be able to reap the reward of the, the reward investment. of the investment. Now, and I don't know how it is for you, but that is a lot flimsier of a proposition than it used to be. You can go in, do your work and lose your money and build the act, turn around and you lose the act. You lose the act to a package. You lose the act to another promoter. Well, losing an act to a package isn't a big deal because you're going to get it back. Not necessarily, but... But it's still a jump ball. Mm -hmm. So if it's supporting another date, odds are you'll have a chance at getting it back. Losing an act, though, to another promoter and yet not getting the phone call is a whole different thing. You're at a station in your life where you've built enough acts. You've developed enough acts for the industry. You've built into a point where you're now handling theaters and arenas at such a scale that you can't be booking the clubs and developing every act too. I'm sure occasionally there's an act that you just love that you do do a club show for, but I know that number has cut way down. It's low or an agent will call me, do me a favor, or a manager that have a relationship. Sure. Something special, but something, it's right. once in a blue moon. But you developing acts isn't the best use for the industry's time for you because the industry needs you to be producing as many of those theater shows around the country as you can can and the fox's attention is not a small thing. This is true. I think you have done your time building Club X. To say that you don't have the ability to do it, of course you do. That would be easy for you to do it. I'm sure you still do it from time to time. But I think you've done enough of that. At the same time, I have done so many club shows. I have built my share of X. I still continue to develop X because it's something I love to do. I enjoy booking club shows. I, I do it for fun. But it's probably not the best use of my time. But it's a genius thing, and it's the best possible thing for the industry. Sure, of course. And it's exciting to be in on the ground floor and be involved in that artist development. Again, you know, be able to contribute your piece of it. Especially when you can take it from the club to the arena. Sure. So the building process is cool. But even if you're not building, if you're just part of that presentation process where you know that you're at least somewhat catalytic in making the event happen. I, I remember we all have those, those shows that stick out in your mind. I remember doing Paul Simon at the Fox on the Graceland tour. With Lady Smith Black Mombazo? Exactly. And standing on the side of the stage and watching the audience. And it was magic. And these people, you knew that they were having a lifetime experience, that this was a, a memory. They were never going to forget this experience. It was palpable in the air, the level of artistry, and it was magnificent. And I thought to myself, business-wise, this is great. 
but it's that thing that you feel inside, that internal feeling where it's like, you feel like you're part of the process. Even though you're not the artist, you feel like- You get sweat helping. equity. You earned yeah. it. Yeah. And those are the bands that it just sucks that much more when they fuck you over and they play for somebody else. Exactly right. That's one of the things that turns my crank is that when you can be part of making that magic and making those memories for people. Do you have some advice for the younger generation coming up? How do you get your feet wet to be a good promoter? A couple of things that you would point out that is a must know. Again, listening to one of the podcasts the other day, you know, how do you break into the business? It's harder and harder, but it's like Larry Butler was saying, he just hung out at Warner Brothers and did whatever he could do. You need coffee, I'll get coffee. You need me to make copies, I'll make copies. If you're young, you need to be willing to do pretty much anything so that you can be in the vicinity and learn and create you as an entity that's known to other people in the business. So they become aware of your capabilities and aware of your demeanor, your work ethic. People talk about luck in this business. Well, yeah, luck has a lot to do with it, but you have to put yourself in the right place to be lucky. It's like the old joke. It's like a guy says, please let me win the lottery and nothing happens. He goes, please let me win the lottery. Nothing happens. And then finally, one day, you know, like the clouds separate and a voice comes down from the clouds and says, do me a favor, buy a ticket. <laughs> you got to put yourself in a position to be lucky and be noticed. I think also you need to be hungry and you need to convey that you're hungry. And that implies that you're willing to do the work. You don't come in as an arrogant person. You come in as somebody who wants to learn and is willing, again, to do the work and to go the extra mile. It's become more of a sterile business where nobody wants to offend anyone and people are very careful. But we were never allowed to say, this is for me. This is what's going to happen for me. It was all about, we were lucky enough to be in the room. It's about the artist. It's not about you, stupid. Shut the fuck up and do the job. What I notice is that people are, like everything else in, seems to me in contemporary life, the rate of acceleration of change increases and increases. So now, not only are people like you and I trying to keep up with the ever-changing landscape of what it is that people want to experience for entertainment, but then the challenge of how to market it, how to price it. It's a lot more difficult, I think, to be a promoter now. When I started doing it, the marketing part wasn't that hard because you were, were narrow casting. You had two or three radio stations, one all, a kind of alternative paper. You could get the message out fairly easily. Now you have such fragmentation. Because on the there's so many side. other shows and white noise. Well, there's so it's, you're trying to find ears and eyes so that you can send your message in there. It's so fragmented, it's unbelievable. And the methodology changes according to the demo. The younger demos get their information a certain way. The older demos get their information a different way. So, you, you know, you have to take that into account. And then that's a more recent challenge for promoters as opposed to the old days. And then, like you were talking earlier about ticketing. Ticketing is a rapidly changing landscape and people are trying to figure out how to maximize revenue. Is that what it's all about, maximizing revenue? You and I are both promoters, so we're the ones ostensibly at risk for every show that we do. So if we're out there and we're making tickets available, and then you have brokers that are acquiring the tickets and marking them up substantially, 
and making a profit essentially on our backs. Not that the brokers don't take risk, I suppose, but that sends a message that the industry is struggling with. It's like, what are we doing here in terms of pricing these tickets? In terms of veneer, you want to look like your ticket prices are correct, but if you have a large number of people that are paying substantially more than face for the ticket, then you're obviously mispricing the ticket. The problem with that is that none of the participants on our side of the fence, the artist, the promoter, the venue, we're not making our share of that revenue. And it's not fueling the industry. You're talking about the secondary market? Right. I'm talking about the secondary market. So let's just distill it down and say, well, that's some number of shows that you might have taken a shot on that you're not going to take a shot on because the brokers don't promote shows. Right. So they've taken the resource out of the market by selling the futures. You're right. They're bastardizing the food chain, if you will. I want to get deeper into the whole scalper thing, and I'd love to talk more to you about that, but I see that as a panel coming up at one of the conferences very soon. Right. I want to thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us on Promoter 101. It's been a pleasure. Man, Steve does it by the book, an example of a great textbook promoter. Mike Luba, Madison S. Presents, Promoter 101. Celebrating some birthdays this week. That's April 27th to May 3rd, 2018. Friday, the 27th of April. John Harper, Brian Zisk, Scott Perry, and Zach Seppin. Happy birthday, guys. On Saturday, 28th, we're going to wish a happy birthday to Evan Driscoll. Sunday, from Move Concerts, Fabio. And from High Road, Liz O'Hare. On Monday, we're going to say happy birthday to Kenny Weisberg. May 1st, 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 this Tuesday. We're talking about Dave Rowan. Happy birthday, big guy. On the 2nd of May, that's Wednesday. Shout out to Tim Wilson. Happy birthday. Thursday the 3rd, Nick Light. Giant in this business. Fucking giant. Also, Adam Lewis and Paradigm's Jerry Lima. Happy birthday to everybody from the gang at Promoter 101. Do you envision us as like a street gang, Luke? Uh, I do envision us as some sort of street gang, like some sort of Jets and Sharks. Dan, we're going to have to learn to sing and dance, you know? What would our colors be? I see us as some warm colors, maybe some orange, maybe some red in there. I don't know. What are you thinking? Well, I mean, based on the colors of your pants, I would think it'd be something like Majesta. Majesta? Majesta? Magenta. 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 If I can fucking say it, Magenta! Little throwback. Mint. We would be mint, I would say. Mint Mint or cream for you you beige fans. A little off-white. Eggshell. Our colors, eggshell and taupe. Yes. Yeah. Little blush and bashful. There you go. Fluorescent white. That's what we are. Hello, this is Sarah Mertz. Rick Barrow. Nick Light. Mark Geiger. This is Lee Anderson. Kevin Lyman. John Giddings. Jim Rungi. Jeff White. Brian Zisk. Chuck Randall. Brian O'Connell. Zandria Johnson. Adam Parsons. Darielle Hyatt. Ben Mench. Jamie Miller. Billy Wayne Davis. Brandon Frankel. Mitchell Fawn. Jake Gould. Gary Smith. Jeff Cohen. You are on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. This is a new part of the show here. This is just something that was recorded. We think it's just so worth airing here. Dan's assistant, Desiree Whalen, shared a recent dream with the Emporium Seattle's office, and Dan took a moment to record it. And now, we present to you a new segment on the Promoter 101 podcast. It's time for Dream Analysis with Des. Desiree, tell us about your dreams. So, I got sucked into the Ticketmaster inventory map and was literally walking through a theater and... All of the seats that I was passing were like color coded 
according to which ones were sold and which ones were hold. And I remember walking through and just being like, that's not right. Like that one's actually hold or we don't have this many on hold for the artist or whatever. And it just goes to show that my life is being taken over by ticketing. It's fine. I think Des may be spending entirely too much time on the TM1 system. Anyway, there you fucking go. Hey, this is Brian O'Connell with Live Nation, and we are on Promoter 101. We're joined next by Philadelphia's finest fellow Penn Stater and one of the nicest guys in this industry, Mr. Craig Newman from the Agency for the Performing Arts. The great Craig Newman. Welcome to the show, Craig. You know I love Promoter 101. Well, clearly you're the voice and melody behind our theme song, which I want to thank you for. That song is called Tongue Bath. Yes, sir. Thought it was appropriately named. It's an earworm for sure. It gets stuck buzzing around. It's Promoter 101. It's honestly, there's two things I want to say, and I want to thank you for letting me do it. One thing, it certainly opened up some floodgates creatively for me to start working at my home studio a little bit more. That was sort of like the first jump back into setting back up the mic, getting my MIDI keyboard out. And I'm actually writing a song a week now with a separate songwriting group. But doing this song was something that really jaunted that back. And two, I can't tell you how many nice compliments I get from admirers of the podcast, listeners of the podcast who connect the dots. They'll come up to me and say, you know, I listen to this podcast. I'm learning so much from it. And I really look forward to hearing the music at the beginning. And I found out that was you. And so it's very flattering. We try to make sure we uh, give you credit and give you a shout out on that every couple of weeks. And for those younger folks out there, when you have a minute, take a listen to the theme music from the television show Taxi, which was a show in the late 70s, early 80s. Early on, Tony Danza. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of actors got their start on that show. Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito was, he looked like an old man back then, Danny DeVito, but it was 40 years ago. I think he was in his 30s when he played that role. But go back and listen to the theme music from that show. There is just this amazing, warm. The opening scene where the taxis come across, across the, bridge. the bridge. And the roads comes in. And it's this warm sound. And when you asked me to write the song, I had for some reason and that stuck in my head. And so I got on my MIDI and I kind of got a Rhodesy sound to kick it off. And that's the inspiration. Sometimes when you're not performing music, you book bands for a living. Yeah, side gig. It's worked out pretty well for me. I've been with APA since 2001. Before that, I was with Willie Morris for a short stint. Worked a couple other gigs. Worked a few months with Jonathan Shank, who's now with Red Light. And we did a gig over at Avenue Management in between my agency tenures here. And yeah, I started an APA. Actually, I started an APA right before September 11th hit. I had been only at the agency for a month when everything went down. Here I was, having been an assistant at Willie Morris came over to APA where they were developing this contemporary department because APA had really had a lot of jazz and and sort of uh, throwback artists. We like to say middle of the road and agents like Andrew Simon and Josh Humiston were developing this contemporary department with Troy Blakely as their senior mentor. And it was a perfect time for me to come in with a little bit of experience from William Mars and the ability to get on the phone and sell shows. And Josh took me on and really gave me wings to spread and to get out there and sell and to rep. And it was great. And I still remember when September 11th hit, there was this big buzz around the industry about, wow, what's going to happen to concerts? What's going to happen to concerts? Are people even going to want to buy tickets? Are all these tours going to go in the toilet? And what we found actually was that a lot of ticket sales grew and spiked and people wanted to be entertained was really what we discovered. It was probably a few months after everything had happened. Shows were selling out. At least the shows we were working on were. 
And a lot of the response that we got was, you know what, we just want to take our minds off all this other stuff and go see something. So much experience, so many relationships, such a big company, prominent placement in the middle of Beverly Hills. What is impossible when you put together an incubator of talented people like that? Everything is possible. And we're seeing that day in and day out with the signings, with the ability to go out there as a team not having to fly solo and try and do everything by yourself. For me, being able to go to a Bruce Solar and Andy Summers, tell them that I have a passion for something and I really need their wisdom to help cross it over the line. So nothing is impossible. And there are no rules. There are no boundaries. We work in an agency where the top brass will say, as long as you can figure out a way to have it be successful, you can represent whatever you want. And that freedom has allowed me to grow as an agent into where I am today. You represent Irvine. You have one of the biggest cooks in the world, magicians, illusionists, the biggest Beatle tribute band in the world, Fab Four. It's not just rock bands, which you also have. You have the band that created Hey There, Delilah, Playing White Tees. Just your personal roster that you're personally responsible for to have this amazing bag of interesting variety. And I got to tell you, I wouldn't see it any other way. As an agent, we get to a point where we feel like we've emblazoned a path. For some people, like Kara Lewis, top of her game, what she does is just, in my mind, it's unbelievable. The work that she's done with hip hop and R&B artists, and she's just in that zone best of the best. Betsy Berg at our company, who is a speaker and lecture agent, she has the top speakers and lecturers and nobody can touch the business she does. She, that's her path. Some agents go after country music. Some agents go after rock. Some agents feel more comfortable working with classic rock artists and stay away from contemporary. For me, what I came to find around 2009, 2010 was that I was going to do variety. And there's no other really word to use variety. It meant that I could come in and book a rock act. I could come in and book a country act. I could come in and sign something. I represented Jerry Lewis until he died. I represent Priscilla Presley on her speaking tour. Elvis's stories told by Priscilla Presley. It's one of the most incredible hour and a half of listening I've ever done as an audience member. A lot of my, you know, you mentioned Chef Robert Irvine, unbelievably successful chef on television. The agency business as it is just continues to evolve. There is an informalness to promoter-agent relationship on the rock agent side. Like, let's have a beer and catch up and call each other assholes. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. In an embraceful way. Opposed to, in the arts world, it carries itself a little bit more dignified. And I know that there's boards and nonprofits and there's an outline of educating and bringing the arts to people. So there's good reason for that. It's all based on grants, money, and producing things in a certain way, whereas Rock and roll doesn't apologize. And I think that there's extra effort involved. See, I was a rock and roll agent from 2002 until 2009. Those seven years, I was rock and roll all the way. I was booking it, working with agents like Andrew Simon on tours like Panic at the Disco and Fall Out Boy, working with Josh Humson on Flogging Molly and Something Corporate, working with Troy Blakely on Lenny Kravitz and Black Crows and Robert Plant and Judas Priest. And I was rock and roll, rock and roll, rock and roll, right? And you're so right about the way it was, the, the hangs, the go-outs, the beers, when I decided to shift into arts. And I never let go of rock and roll. But when I decided to shift into arts, I had to make all new relationships. I had to go to conferences. Nobody knew who the heck I was. Didn't matter that my card said head of performing arts. They didn't know me. I had to make extra phone calls. I would get on planes and visit theaters. I said, if I'm not going to be able to get you on the phone, I'm going to come to your front door. Year one, I probably didn't book a lot of art shows. I still booked rock shows, probably didn't book a lot of art shows. Year two, started to swing a little bit more my way. I'm at the point now where, you know, having been in that world for eight years, I feel comfortable that I can go to a conference like APAP, which is the big conference 
events in New York every January where all the arts presenters, agents, everybody meets and talks about shows. I can go to that conference and pretty much take the meetings I want to take, sell the things I want to sell because with the help of all these agents at APA, we've stocked the shelves with great shows, shows like Brian Wilson. You know, we just signed Smokey Robinson and we're working with Frankie Valli. Performing arts centers, they're not just going to do opera. They're not just going to do Broadway. They're not just going to do dance. They're going to get a little bit of everything. And one of the bits is going to be pop music. If we have something to sell them, that's going to do really well for them. It also opens up the door for us to present new ideas to them like Robert Irvine Live. Are art centers only looking to do the vintage heritage names or are they looking to get into some of the younger, hipper things that maybe you might see at a windish agency that maybe Andrew Ellis represents at your agency? So glad you asked that. The shift is on, man. And they are starting to really open themselves up to artists who want to play in that setting. You know, I look at an artist who we represent, Andrew McMahon, or I look at a Ben Folds. I look at artists who have played those big rock situations or they've been on Warp Tour, they've been to Lollapalooza, and yet their music translates so well into a seated theater environment. Flaming Lips, something like that. Exactly. And you get on the phone with a presenter. You're going to have the presenter is the person who's buying for the Performing Arts Center. In my mind, two kinds of presenters. One who's really going to have their finger on the pulse of what's going on now, and those who are not doing contemporary music and you have to educate them. Either way, you get on the phone and you say, hey... I've got Flaming Lips or I've got Andrew McMahon or I've got an artist who is clearly proven themselves. They're on the radio, they're playing events, they're playing festivals, but they have a show where they can take their fans into a more intimate situation, which leads me to something with the Plain White Tees that we've talked about, which is, you know, now that they've been a band for over, geez, I mean, they're going on 20 years. They've got a lot of footage. They've got a lot of memories captured in video. What if you could go see your favorite artist, but not just hear the hits? You can sit, you can enjoy yourself, hear the hits, hear the stories behind the hits, see some footage. It becomes a three-dimensional multimedia show and performing art centers are clamoring for material like that. So yeah, contemporary music can certainly work and is working. And I want to point out just real quick, I made Flaming Lips an example. They're not actually a client of your agency, right. but you were using them as well as an example of an act sure. that was versatile that could be on either side. At no point claiming that they had switched agencies. Is it going to make me sound like an old man to say that I like to sit when I see my shows? I think a lot of people do want to enjoy the show and not think about the guy jumping up and down in front of you. I mean, there's moments for that. If I see social distortion, I want to see him in a ballroom where we're standing and we're mixing it up a little bit. But you've done shows at the Greek Theater. I have. Pretty rocking shows at the Greek Theater, but Greek Theater seated for the most part. And yeah, there are opportunities for fans to stand up and enjoy it, but boy, oh boy, they can also sit and enjoy the show and it's great. Bands are versatile and talented and they play different shows at different points of their career and different songs have different themes. And I think different artists do too. So there's some artists when you see them play like Social Distortion at the Ryman's, a seated venue. I was bouncing off the walls. It was so good. I've seen them play the show box sold out for multiple nights and standing all night long, bouncing off the walls. One's a seated venue, one's a standing venue, different vibe. But great shows, nevertheless, by the same artist. It's important for agents to just take into consideration that theaters and performing arts centers are places where their artists can play. And I have seen the shift as well. Other agencies, they've got people in place, head of performing arts centers. They're all coming to the conferences. They're taking it very seriously. So for me, that's exciting because here's a world where a lot of us might not have realized you can get a lot out of it and you can get your artists into these pristine, gorgeous, gorgeous theaters with wonderful sound systems. A lot of these theaters have really upped their game as far as production and spent millions of dollars to up their sound and lights. And to the artist, you're treated like royalty. 
from the dressing rooms, everybody who is a part of the commission at the theater wanting to meet you. And a lot of them are hiring chefs for catering. You know, you're on stage. It looks good. It feels good. I just think that this is a part of our business that we need to keep paying attention to. Talking to Craig Newman, the start to finish and never burning bridges. Thank you so much, my friend. It's always an honor. I love what you're doing. You guys, this podcast spins my wheels all the time. Promoter 101, this is Craig Newman from APA sending love to Dan and everybody out there. Craig wrote the theme song to the podcast and he is long overdue to be a guest. Thrilled that he finally came on the podcast and be here. By the way, while we're on the subject of Penn State, Luke, I want to tell you that I saw the documentary HBO was airing right now and I thought that Al did an amazing job playing that role. And what a troubled school and a hard time to capture. And I think they showed the turmoil so brilliantly well of an amazing institution that is that school and that coach. I have not seen this. I've just read reviews generally in my time since Penn State. And I was there for Paterno's last two years of coaching. I, I will say that uh, I've avoided watching those things, but I've heard good things about Al Pacino. But to be sure, this is a film that HBO produced, not a documentary about Penn State. But there are a few that are, you know, I've heard worth checking out that have aired over over the past couple of years on it. So I'll have to eventually check it out. Probably would, would do an hour and a half worth of commentary on it during the entire thing. But I heard Pacino does a pretty good job. So respect to that. All right, you analytic son of a bitch. What's the difference between a film and a documentary? Calling the Al Pacino film about the Penn State struggles around Jerry Sandusky is like saying that the Dark Knight Rises and the Dark Knight and Batman Begins are documentaries about Bruce Wayne. None of them are, you know, they're fictionalized to a large degree. And, and it's not a documentary. It's, it's a film. It's, there's some fictionalized moments in it. No one knew what those conversations were. If this were a, a documentary about it, they would have been interviewing Sue Paterno and Jay Paterno and, and Graham Spanier from House Arrest. All right. Fair point of view. Thank you for the English lesson, Mr. Pierce. No problem, Dan. Always here to give a really snarky comment. You know, I'm great for that. <laughs> yes, you are. Steve Strange, X-Ray Turing, Promoter 101. We're excited to bring back to the podcast this week one of our favorite segments, Three Questions. You've asked for it, and of course, we're going to oblige anytime you ask us to do anything. So the only getch is we don't know the questions before it happens. They happen in real time, and we have to answer in real time. This week, our guest on Three Questions is from New Frontier Touring, Mr. Paul Lohr. Welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here. So the rules for three questions are simple. We just don't know the questions in advance. Paul, what do you got for us? All right. Here's the first question. What is the one thing you hate to hear the most from an agent? We're going to have to cancel the show. Really, really sorry. It's out of our control. They can't make it. Yeah, that's a pretty bad one. All right. Number two, as a promoter, what was that nightmare concert that you're like, why did I book this show? I was kind of apprenticing for Doug Kaufman and nobody in particular in Denver. And he had booked Hole to appear at the Mammoth Events Center in Denver. And this is during Doll Parts, and she's just huge at the moment. And doors are opening. We get a phone call. She's still in New York getting on a private heading towards Denver. And I'm doing the math in my head, how long it takes to fly from New York to Denver, how long we have with our one opener on the show. And I'm trying to quickly figure out how practical this is. And I'm realizing we don't have enough talent to make it through and stretch it. So quickly get a local band that's playing next door at the Ogden added to the bill before the tour opener because it was just a two band bill. And we're just stretching and stretching and stretching. And somewhere along the time of wondering 
when she's going to be wheels down and doing the math of how long it's going to take to get from DIA down to Mammoth at the other end of Colfax on a Sunday night. And these young children, because it's a pop song and it was really big at the time, like this is getting late and it's getting bad. And I was chain smoking and I'm not someone you've ever seen with, with a cigarette in his hand. So yeah, it was a weird day. Everything worked out. She got there really, really late. She played what I would say was not a great set, but she was in the building. But you never had to deal with any kind of a natural disaster or those force majeure clauses that we all dread. You never had one of those? Uh, no, I, I've been fairly knock on wood lucky. It's mostly been artist user failure has been my experience has made for the hardest days. But nine times out of 10, there ain't nothing that an artist that's willing to play and a team willing to put on a show can't get their way through. What else you got? Who is or was the greatest promoter you ever met? So it's a hard question. I mean, growing up, Barry Faye was a rock star in Denver and certainly had the best temper. I, you know, you wouldn't say that he would be the best promoter. I never met Graham. It's important to note that I was in high school in my freshman year when he passed. So I didn't have that relationship. So I can't say it would be him because I just didn't know him. I have dealt with some amazing promoters over the years, but the most hands down, no bullshit, roll up your sleeves and get it done and make sure the act leaves happy. It's probably Bill Silva. Nice. Good choice. Hey, Paul Lohr, thank you so much for joining us on Promoter 101. And congratulations on the amazing success that the Abits are enjoying right now. That's an amazing documentary that is out on HBO right now. Thank you, Judd. He hit it out of the park. And that's really a uh, rising tide is raising that ship for sure. I think talent always rises to the top. And clearly the Avits are a pure case of that. Indeed. And there's more to come. Looking for another album out uh, sometime in 2019. Hey, Promoter 101, breaking exclusive. Avit Brothers going to record and release a brand new album. Nice. You heard it here first. Paul Lohr, New Frontier Tour, and I'm Promoter 101. Bye for now. It's great to have Paul back on the podcast. Appreciate him dropping in for some three questions. Hey, if you want to be on three questions, feel free to email us at steinyandpromoter101.net and say, hey, I got some shit to ask you guys, and we'll have you on. That's how it works. Hey there, this is Seth Hurwitz. I am one of the last independent promoters. I'm proud of it. And you are listening to Promoter 101. Finishing up the mega podcast, we have a special interview. That's right, special. Mike is special. So did your presents. Mike Barsh talks about competing in the Mile High City. One of the last independent promoters in the United States, Mike Sodajerk. Mr. Barsh, welcome to Promoter 101. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is a thrill for me. We've known each other for years and got to watch you develop from a college record label into a manager, into a concert promoter, and now venue owner in multiple cities and multiple rooms. And you guys got to be doing 1,500 shows a year or something like between all the different rooms. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, not quite. Maybe half that, but still a lot. Is it is about 750 somewhere in there? Yeah, I would say so. Between all the owner-controlled venues, and now we have Hody's up in Fort Collins as well, which used to be the Starlight years back for anyone that's been around here. So yeah, between all those, we're probably about 700. And then we do some shows in non-owned venues as well. So we could add those into the mix. Colorado is pretty much your stomping ground. You stay within the state for the most part. Right. Yeah, exactly. I get asked that a lot. Like, oh, why don't you do something in Salt Lake or Albuquerque? Because those markets suck. I don't know them, so I don't feel like it would do a very good job there. I'd rather just stick to what we know. Obviously, we do a lot of heavy shows. Our staff's pretty well versed. You have really focused on 
the venue side, owning the dirt, selling the beer, selling the merch, controlling your own calendar and filling dark nights. That's always been your bread and butter. Well, not always, but that's what it evolved into. From the time you opened the Black Sheep. Right. The Black Sheep was the first venue that we actually owned and operated. But prior to that, I was a promoter. So I was going into other people's rooms, paying them rent, buying the act, selling the tickets, and we would live and die on whatever we made at the door. But we were missing all the other revenue. We were missing all the ancillary revenue. And I mean, all money aside beyond that, we had lack of control as well. I mean, we had lack of control in terms of how the venue was treating the artist, how the venue was treating our fans, all that type of thing. I mean, no matter what we tried to do to make that a good experience all the way around, you're still in somebody else's room and you're still kind of at their mercy. So it became apparent early to me that if we really wanted to control everything and the, the experience and continue to grow and, and make this thing last, that we had to own and operate our own venues. Now, you not only do your own venues, you said you promote outside the room, and that's led you to some really big shows. You're involved with Riot Fest, which is taking a year off, at least in Denver, but the last three or four years it's been in the market and has done sizable business. It's a three-day festival, and it still exists in Chicago this year. Right. And there's still hopes and talks of continuing the Denver future with that. Right. Nothing set yet, but they're still in the middle of producing this year's festival. Yeah. I mean, we lost one of our partners at the end of 2016, you know, which was very difficult. And he was a major role in the festival. I think we just all agreed the best thing for the festival was to just focus on Chicago. I'm not involved in Chicago, but, you know, to focus on Chicago and set Denver aside. And we'll see what happens with that. Very creative festival. They've done some great things with reunions and promotions. They're amazing. The Garbage Pail Kid promotion was the coolest thing. You've also been involved with some bigger concerts. You've had the opportunity to promote shows at Red Rocks as well. Yeah, we've done a handful of things. As, I mean, as anybody knows, Red Rocks is a very difficult venue to try to just go and do on your own. I mean, the holds are 30 deep and I think there's a structure there that's difficult for an independent or, or somebody who's not doing a high volume of shows. So, you know, the bulk of the shows that we've done at Red Rocks have generally been co-promotes with other uh, larger promoters and mainly just given our history with those acts. People have wanted to include you and keep you guys involved. So obviously you're doing a good job. People are coming back to you and making sure you're being included in the bigger picture shows. Yeah, which is great. I mean, we always appreciate that when whether it's the artist or the management or, or the agent to have them continue to include us as the act is growing like that. It's great. Some people say that Denver's a competitive market. Would you agree with that? I have no idea what they're talking about. Right? <laughs> there's definitely a handful of competitive markets in the country. I would say Denver is the top of the heap. I mean, there's more and more 250 cap venues being opened in Denver, you know, even more so than larger venues. It blows my mind. It's just like, really? Like, you've got to have every single, you know, one of these shows. But it is what it is. And I'm, there's a lot of volume here. And I think that, you know, the market can absorb it. You can be in Denver, exist here, compete for shows and still find a way to get along. From my side of things, yeah, that's that's how I look at it. I think it's kind of counterproductive to be as cutthroat and competitive as it is. I mean, all it ends up doing is just driving up the prices and driving up ticket prices. And I think if there's a way to just find some middle ground and try to work with all the players in the market and sort that out, it's just a more um, peaceful playground, I guess. You've been able to grow a business in what's got to be the toughest environment ever to plant crops in. Everything is competitive. Everything is top dollar. Does that make the end of the year that much harder? I mean, this is the irony in the whole thing. As difficult as it gets, as competitive as it gets, as it continues to get, every year is better and better. When you would think that we would be declining or our competition is taking a bite, we're actually growing 
and doing better than ever. Well, I love hearing that. I think the idea of independence existing is good for the music industry. I absolutely agree. I mean, I think we all have our role in, in this industry. I just think we have a, a unique way of handling shows and handling artists and promoting those shows that maybe, you know, other larger companies can't necessarily get their arms around. Well, you guys are a service industry company. I mean, you got real production, you've got real marketing, and you're doing something right. You're getting more volume every year and a very competitive market and nobody's bitching about what you guys are doing, which is the biggest compliment you could possibly have in this industry. <laughs> it's it's great to hear. And I would much rather hear nothing than, you know, getting nasty phone calls on Monday morning. Those aren't nice. No, we work hard to avoid that. Let's talk about the record label for a minute. You had a real knack for that. You had distribution, you had the mail order thing, and then you were doing this from your dorm room, right? Like this was like early on, you were still in school. I was actually out of school by that time, but yeah, there was a million of us around, you know, dotted around the country, just ran it out of the basement. I really, really loved it. You had an amazing Japanese punk rock band that I love. What were they called? Uh, Electric Summer. Electric Summer. They were great. Yeah, they were exchange students that were living here and yeah, they were a really great band. But, you know, it was all about, for me, it was just, you know, finding these these young acts and putting out their music and, you know, really just working hard to develop them. And it was a great thing. And I think it's just carried forward for me, at least, into what we do now as promoters. I mean, it's still really important. I would rather find these really young acts early on, work with them, try to take them as far as we can. It's a thrilling thing, you know, to, to be a part of that process. So let's talk about why the label ended. Well, the label ended because I saw the writing on the wall. While I was doing the label or later on in, into when I was doing the labels, when I started dabbling in, in, in promoter was going to end it all with Napster? Yeah, I guess so. You thought people stealing music and pirating was going to be the end yeah. of that? I mean, you could see it from that angle and you could see it just in terms of mom and pop record stores shutting down or distributors shutting down. It was just declining. It was a declining business. You know, in the meantime, I had started promoting shows here and there. That was going really well. For me, like just something, you know, triggered in my head, like the record business is declining. These artists aren't going to be making that, you know, that money or that revenue stream from record sales anymore. How are they going to make their money? They're going to make their money going on the road and, and playing shows. And so for me, I felt like that was the bet. That's where it was at, was live. And you, you made that transition. There was a while that you were partnering up with Jason Cotter, who was punk rock, hustler. Right. I, and I mean that in the best possible oh, way. Oh, he was a great guy. I mean, those were really wild times. You're one of the bigger independents in the country now. It's a weird fact to say. It's got to be weird to hear. It is weird to hear. And I, yeah, I mean, I honestly don't even really think about it. <laughs> you know, I really don't. We just keep plugging away and doing our thing. Yeah, I, I don't believe you don't think about it, but let's... Um, <laughs> What are some of the things that you did to solidify yourself in the market that's kept you in business? And obviously, the rooms are given. Opening the rooms gave you an anchor point. But what else were the cornerstones of your business that made it so you were able to build a thriving business? Well, I think part of it is timing. And I mean, you're from here, so you know. I mean, Denver was a very different place 20 years ago. The landscape here was quite a bit different. Barry was kind of on his way out. And then there were no large promoters to speak of. There was no Live Nation or AEG in the market. There was nobody in particular. There was NIPP, right? That's what I was getting to. So they were kind of the guys, right? At least for club level. And some crampy little independents too. Right. But it allowed <laughs> us to be kind of the DIY guys, right? And to kind of carve out our niche and do our thing. I think if you run a good business and you're good to people and you're good to the artists and the fans, like time is on your side. And as time goes on, you you just grow and grow and grow. And those relationships continue to build. And, you know, we were here first. We're here first. Get in early and just wait it out. Well, no, get in early and work your ass off. I like that. You guys got to brag a couple of years ago, and I'm not sure if this has been an annual thing that is repeated, 
You guys sold more Pabst Blue Ribbon in the market than anyone else had that you've been awarded a plaque from Pabst for literally documenting that you guys move more Pabst than anybody else in the market. That's true. Yep. I got that. Uh, that was at one of our holiday parties and everyone knew about it except me. And then they presented it to me on stage that night. And that was, it meant a lot because, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee. So Pabst was at the time it was brewed in Milwaukee and half my friend's fathers worked for Pabst. So it was cool. One of my favorite TV t-shirts is my Pabst Theater shirt. Yeah. It's the namesake. I, I mean, before it was a music venue, it was a theater. Like I saw The Wiz there. My grandmother was a, an usher at the, the Pabst oh, awesome. Theater. Yeah. When I was a little kid and my parents were working, she would take me to all these shows. Shout out to those guys in Milwaukee that run the Riverside and the Pabst and Turner. You got to love those guys. Matt's doing an amazing job those over there. The best. I mean, yeah. it's, yeah, it's really phenomenal. And having grown up there, I mean, we had nothing like that, you know, when I was a kid. We had the Eagles Club and Jack Koshik's Odd Rock Cafe. Jack Koshik, independent concert promoter slash wrestling promoter. That's right. <laughs> and the, obviously the rave, which all the cool punk rock shows happened. Well, it was the Eagles Club back then, but yep. Right. Leslie West with her four beautiful venues. It's a very cool thing. I love that setup. All good independence. And that's a, there's another great market with solid independence. But yeah, Denver is a different market like that. They had NIP and before they all conglomerated, Guest Presents, Jesse was here doing not a lot, but some serious side shows when he did them. Right. Big stuff like White Zombie, Pantera at Red Rocks, like independent promoter promoted that show that was probably only doing 60 shows a year. Yeah. I mean, there was Dog, right? There was Bill Bass. Small acts, yeah. Maven Productions, known to Gandelman. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily competing with most of what we did, but Ani DeFranco was selling out Red Rocks for a very long time, and that would be a known show. Mm-hmm. Right. Even Rob Marshall from Road Home would be selling out Red Rocks in the Denver Coliseum with DC Talk and Newsboys. Some of these bands coming in selling 10,000 tickets, and like random independents, but there were a bunch in Denver. Which is really remarkable, I mean, if you think about it, because that's pre-internet, right? Those guys were selling lots of records, too, to get to that point. Would you or are you considering possibly opening up another market, putting a venue in another city? You know, the Hodes in, in Fort Collins is kind of the newest thing. I mean, we took that on. So you're in three different cities, although you can get to any of them in an hour and change from your house. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for the artists, I think it's a great thing, too, particularly small acts. You know, if they want to come to Colorado and knock out three dates really quick and make a bunch of money without having to go through epic drives, it works really well. Can I ask you about Boulder? Sure. It would seem like if you're you know, opening up rooms and you're adding to it, it seems like that would be in your site sooner than later. Boulder's always been in my sights. We'll see what happens. I mean, you know, I booked Tulagi up there for three years up until the very last show. Those were probably some of the best years of my career. Really great memories. And it we may have been the funnest, but I think the industry would disagree that your best years of your career are the last three. The last three? Yeah, you've done some pretty impressive stuff recently. And what you booked at Tulagi is well, cool club shows. Yeah. None of that stuff really compares to some of the stuff you guys have done at the summit and at the marquee. Yeah, I, well, I appreciate that. I, I suppose you're right. I, it just, you know, I think Talagi just holds like a special place in my heart. So you lit up when you said the name. <laughs> I love it. It was a great venue. We did great shows and, you know, made a lot of friends and uh, it, it was a good period. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I live in Boulder. It's my town. So what's in the future? You guys have got great things going. You know, we haven't talked about this. You had the instincts and vision to see best one of your biggest competitors ever and saw that he was available and brought him into your company because you knew it'd be a good thing. And it's been a great match. But Peter Orr 
competed with you tooth and nail for shows forever and you gave him a job when he needed one. Well, it's funny, you know, I didn't really know Peter that well, like on a personal level, but I knew him on a business level. And yeah, he was with NIPP. I was on my own and we fiercely competed with each other. I remember the first day, you know, he came into the office and it was just like, I cannot believe this fucking guy's in my office right now. I mean, it was a good thing, but it was just like knowing the history. Yeah, it was kind of surreal. Well, it's kind of funny because I remember him moving to Vegas and I remember that not working out with Live Nation and then hearing the rumor that he was coming to work for you. I remember calling you and going, I just heard the weirdest thing. When he was with Live Nation, we were doing some work together. So that's a little bit how our relationship developed. I mean, we kind of got to know each other on a personal level and and on a business level. And we were no longer really competing with one another. I kind of made the decision to to work with one another because Live Nation was not really interested too much in the club business. And at the time, they were controlling the Gothic Theater. That was our world. And I needed to be able to put acts in there. So that's, you know, kind of how we worked together on that. He When he left Live Nation and, you know, he really, really wanted to be back in Denver. He's lived here for a long, long time. It's a really important city to him. And I just reached out to him and said, hey, like, I don't know what your plans are, but um, I'd love to have you come work with us if you if you want. Amazing insight to think past the years of fighting and think this could be a good thing financially and the best thing for the market. And Peter's a great buyer. There's no question about it. But to put all of that aside and say, this is a good idea. This is just good business. I mean, we had just added the summit at that time. So that was, you know, our, our 1100 cap venue. And I was booking it myself. But I realized that by adding that venue, now I had three venues that I was responsible for. It was just getting difficult. It's a weird thing to have someone work for you that had more experience as a buyer. No, I mean, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I I think that's what I've always tried to do is surround myself with the best and brightest people possible. And I'm not selling short your buying experience by any means. You buy a ton of shows and always have. Sure. I think we both agree that that Live Nation experience of buying those shows. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's next level, uh, you know, no doubt about it. But I wouldn't say that I'm like intimidated by it. I'm like grateful for it. I mean, who wouldn't want like one of the best buyers in the country on their team? Well, when you put it like that... Do you book by music? Are you are you an ears guy? Yeah, absolutely. It's not the numbers as much as of the ears? I mean, you, you kind of have to focus on, on the numbers, but yeah, I think more for me, it's like a, it's a total gut thing and it's a total just like you hear this band and you just kind of know it. That's how I've always just operated. I remember you and me sitting in the lobby at the Ozzelon one night. I can't remember what the show was, but we were talking about the best research ever is watching and seeing what shirts kids are wearing. Right. <laughs> it's like, so we know what, sh- what bands to book next. It's yeah. Like, well. And I remember sitting there and you and me were talking about, that's a lot of big drill car shirts. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we both had that look like, wonder which one of us is going to get to the agent first tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, right. <laughs> it was like the t-shirt test, but being in the room. You can see those things and you can get the vibe of that feeling. And it's not necessarily counting the T-shirts because more often than not, half the audience is going to be wearing an AFI or Metallica shirt. So that doesn't help you a lot. I've been burned on that theory a few times, too. I booked on the number of T-shirts and then um, it just turned out that everybody really liked the shirt. Well, Hot Topic has really fucked up the equation. (laughs) It did, yeah. But any insight for the next generation of people coming up of things that they can do to give their career the best chance to move forward? It sounds cliche, but I I just think it's always about passion. If you're willing to do a job and not get paid and you're completely happy with that, then you're probably in the right job. You're passionate about it. You, You follow that passion. You work really hard. Good things should come. 
Mike Soderjerk hanging out with me in beautiful Denver. It's just like old times. Thank you so much. You know, Dan, Mike just sold his venues in Denver to Live Nation, and he's doing business mostly in Fort Collins and Colorado Springs these days. So congrats to Mike on the sale. Very proud of you. Bet that was a big fucking check. I bet you it was, too. Hey, everyone. This is Cindy Lynott. Kira Finkenberg. Patty Ann Tarleton. Whitney Bond. Amy Miller. John Holliday. Marcy Allen. Paula Palazzo. Becca Leifer. And you're listening to Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. And I'm on Promoter 101. That's it for episode 80 of Promoter 101. Thank you for joining us. As always, if you have any questions, write us at Steiny at Promoter101.net. Before we take off, there's a quote of the week, as always, from Mr. Dave Grohl of the... Fuck it. He's from Nirvana. I'm not going to say the other band. He's from Nirvana. That's right. If you're a great band with great songs, people will notice it. It's really that simple. We're going to be back next week with a brand new episode of Promoter 101 with a hat trick of interviews. Three massive industry names. Each impressive as the next. Live Nation Comedy, Andy Levitt. The vice president of booking of the Nashville's Bridgestone Arena, Mr. David Kells on the podcast. And the Leighton Pope organization's namesake, the total icon, Carl Leighton Pope. Plus, next week is going to be our first ever backwards episode. We're going to start from the bend and we're going to go to the beginning. It's going to be completely reverse. I have no idea why, but what the hell? What a crazy idea. It's going to be Promoter 101 in reverse. It's going to be sick, Luke. Promoter 101 in reverse. Let's give a thanks to everybody listening to this podcast today. We're wishing you sold out shows. For the weeks to come, cheers. Jim Glancy, Barry presents on Promoter 101.